I, uh, I'm starting a series on the book of Ephesians, which for those of you that have been around daylight for a little while, you know this is something new for me. I don't consider myself a biblical scholar in any, uh, in, in any way at all. I can read biblical, biblical scholars, I can, I can trust their judgment, I can trust the concordances and, and the commentaries and such, but uh, so I'm, I'm typically a guy that'll pick a topic like uh, faithfulness and talk about faithfulness and what it means to be faithful. And so I'm a topical preacher, not what they call an exegetical preacher. So an exegetical preacher will try to open the Bible and go through the text and say, what does this text mean? What is the importance of this text? And I'm attempting this kind of for the first time in my life, and I'm ridiculously excited about it. The more I, I've, I've been into the text of Ephesians, which is the, the book that we're going to tackle, I've gotten really excited about it. But I, I want to preface everything I have to say in the coming weeks on the book of Ephesians with that um, caveat that says I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm, I'm going to share with you what I believe God is stirring up in me as I read through the text, and that's it. Uh, I, I encourage everybody at Daylight to think for themselves. Our, our second pillar that we build a church on is that of study. And so I, I hope that you don't just count on everything I put out every week, but that you're doing your own study and, and reading your own commentaries and learning on your own. But I'm going to share some principles, and, and kind of Ephesians can be kind of summed up in this, this passage that we have, or this little, this little comment we have on the screen. For whatever reason, this light's on up here, so I apologize if, if it's hard for you guys to see. But it's God in Christ in us and Christ in God, and it was a good opportunity to use some pretty cool fonts. And so there's the title. Uh, uh, my wife and I were in Turkey this, this summer, this spr early, late spring, and we went to Ephesus, which I was really excited about because it's a biblical-sounding city, and I, I, uh, I'm somewhat familiar with the city, but it kind of blew me away at how small it was. I think of, when you think of Ephesus in the Bible, you think of this booming metropolis that Paul went to to spread the gospel and share, share the truth of Jesus. And it's really, even, even in its prime, even in its heyday, uh, the population of Ephesus was about 200,000 people. So it wasn't this booming city like New York City that I would think of. Uh, but when he went and did his missionary journeys there, it wasn't easy for him to hide. He, he, he was known once he showed up. This is the library at Ephesus. This is a picture I took this spring. And uh, this is where Paul would have studied. This is where the sages and scholars of his day would have studied. There's, there's actually a secret tunnel right up here on the bottom right that you can see. And this is where all the scholars would sneak off to be with their mistresses during the day. Um, they had little, little side ladies that they would sneak off to. And so we learned all kinds of interesting tidbits about Ephesus, and Ephesus has become kind of a tourist trap nowadays. This is a picture I took of uh, one of the booths, which I thought at least they were honest, right? So that was cool. And this is one of the, one of the two standing colosseums in Ephesus, and uh, it's a panoramic picture. So this actually surrounded me, and I'm standing on the platform that, that, that all these people would have been in front of, and you can't see on this side, but my wife and our tour guide are sitting over here, and then there's one little tourist over here in the corner that kind of gives you a little bit of perspective. But they say in, in, in its prime, this Colosseum would seat 30,000 people. And there's this passage in the book of Acts where Paul has come in and he started a tent-making business. And so he, he, in order to fund his ministry, made tents and sold tents. And so he went in, and, and I saw the places where he would have set up, and they're about 10, 10 foot by 10 foot little squares. He, he would have been in this small little place in the marketplace of Ephesus. But he started talking to people about Jesus. So he shows up and he starts making tents and developing a business. And in doing so, his prime motive was that everybody in Ephesus would hear about Jesus and what Jesus did. Well, so many people became followers of Jesus and started getting rid of what they called pagan, or what he would have called a pagan god. They, uh, Artemis, also known as Diana, was kind of the god of Ephesus. And so many people started rejecting the Roman religion and converting to Christianity 
that it caused this major uproar. So he wasn't hiding at all. He was, he was out there, and everybody knew about this new rebel named Paul who had moved into Ephesus. Well, they dragged him into this Colosseum one day in chains and started chanting. They, they stirred the people up into a riot, and they started chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so when we entered this Colosseum, our, our, uh, our tour guide was Muslim, but he said he had a great respect for Paul because of Paul's courage. And so when we walked into this Colosseum, our tour guide starts chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is... And it's echoing, booming off the walls. And, you know, 30... and he said, now imagine 30,000 people doing that. And so I got to stand in the spot where Paul was held in chains and hear, Great is Diana, and just relive this passage out of the book of Acts, which is a really amazing experience for me. And it just put things in perspective. And so imagine my disappointment when I started studying and realized that the book of Ephesians probably was not written to Ephesus. This is going to be a shocker for you guys. I don't, I'm not sure about this. Um, modern scholarship says probably not. And I'll, I'll show you. This is the first, the first verse. So I'm pumped up about teaching on Ephesians because I've been, man, I know that dude, you know. I, I, I've been there. I saw it, you know. And so when I started studying who wrote, who wrote the book of Ephesians and who did they write it to, and I found out, this is, this is, this is chapter 1, verse 1 of, of the letter we know as Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints, and then the text in red, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Most scholars today consider that phrase, are in Ephesus and, as what they call an interpolation. It means somebody wrote it in later. So, so if you go back to the original autographs, probably that, that little passage isn't in there because the, the, uh, the earliest and what they call the most reliable manuscripts don't include it. It's not until much later that you see this. So probably what you had, and I don't know for sure, it may or may not have been in there, but I want to be honest about the text and just talk through these things. And I want us to be a church that thinks about these things and doesn't gloss over stuff. We want to study and look, look at what scholarship says. Well, probably what happened is some dude in Ephesus later was reading this passage from Paul and he applied it to Ephesus and everybody in Ephesus was reading it because this big church had been established there. And he thought, well, why didn't Paul say it was to us? So he just wrote in on the side to those of us in Ephesus, boom, and you know, did a little fist raise on his own. And what, what most scholars today is they think that this was probably a generally populated letter that he sent to Asia and to the churches in Asia Minor. And so what's interesting is when you read through Ephesians, in a lot of Paul's letters, you hear him calling out particular people. Say hello to such and such and such and such who were a big help to me when I was there in Corinth, for example. You don't see any of that in the book of Ephesians. He talks generally. And, and so was it or was it not written to Ephesians? I don't know. But here's, here's something we really need to think about is that first word Paul has also come under scrutiny. But that word Paul didn't come under scrutiny until about the mid-1700s. So for the first 1,700 or, you know, 1,600, 1,500 years of the church, nobody questioned who wrote the book of Ephesians, even though the question of who it was written to may have been, may have been asked. And we're going we're gonna to slice through some of this stuff. I have a tendency to believe that it was written by Paul as a general letter to the churches in Asia. Here's why I tend to think that it was probably written by Paul. And, and we'll, talk, we'll, we'll talk, don't freak out right now. We'll talk about some of the stuff as we go, and, and some of it will make more sense. But for about 1,500 years, the church, the early church fathers, all of church history ascribed the book of Ephesians to Paul. When, when early authors in the 300s, 400s, 600s, when they wrote about the book of Ephesians, it was always assumed that that text that says Paul writing to the Christians was real, that it was actually written under Paul, at least under Paul's watch. 
And here's, um, so a couple other things. Manuscript evidence holds. In other words, uh, the earliest and most reliable copies of this book that we have include these passages where Paul identifies himself, and it happens later in the text as well. And then finally, uh, arguments from style are challenging to use. And this is why they, they use what they call textual criticism. So they'll take letters that they know came from Paul. It'd be like if I wrote letters to my wife and, and I used the word honey. Let's just pretend that that's a word I use all the time. So I say honey this, honey that throughout the letters. And then all of a sudden you find a letter supposedly from me to Kara and in nowhere does, do I use that word honey. I start using deary or you know something, sweet cheeks or whatever it is that I use. So textual critics would say that obviously is not a letter from HL. But isn't it possible that I started using a different name? So what happens when you use arguments from style is you have to remember that, that authors change. They develop. They, they use different lingo under different occasions. Now, in ancient literature, for us today, if I write a letter as Dennis, and I say, I, say, I Dennis, writing to the saints at Daylight Church, and I write all this stuff about how you, you know, I love your coffee there and thanks for the movie popcorn, right? Whatever. And I sign it as Dennis, but everybody knows H.L. wrote it. In our modern Western scholarship culture, that's wrong. I've committed forgery. But in ancient culture, there could be po the possibility that, I'm a, that Dennis is my mentor, and he says, I want you to write a letter for me. Or he says, here, say this in general. Or Dennis halfway writes a letter and then kicks the bucket. Sorry, Dennis. He dies. But I've been his apprentice for some time, and I know Dennis's thoughts, so I finished the letter. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff that goes on in the old days. So even if Paul didn't write the letter with his hand, it doesn't mean it didn't come from Paul. And so here's seven levels of how we look at literature uh, in ancient times. One would be literal authorship. This is I, Paul, am writing you, and he's writing it with his own hands. Number two would be dictation. Paul's not writing. Paul's in chains, but he's talking to his friend and saying, hey, write this down. And he's literally he's saying something to him that the author writes exactly what he's saying. Number three would be delegated authorship. So uh, Paul says to his friend, hey, you've been following me for a while. You know these principles, and here's four things I want you to write a letter about. Go ahead and write that letter up. And he trusts him to do that. Uh, posthumous authorship is this idea that somebody dies halfway through a letter and one of his friends that traveled with him who was authorized by him finishes it. And then finally, we have apprentice authorship, which is uh, somebody who is authorized to speak. So I've been traveling around speaking on Dennis's behalf for years, and I want to write a letter as Dennis. In ancient culture, this would be perfectly acceptable because I am his apprentice, and I, I speak for him. Uh, honorable pseudepigraphy is people who admire Dennis after he's gone write a letter on his behalf as Dennis. And then finally, we have forgery. And what we want to eliminate when we're dealing with an old text like this is number seven primarily. So when we look at the, the New Testament, the book of Romans, virtually there's hardly a scholar out there, if any, that don't say Paul literally authored this work. This is like the consummate Paulian work is the book of Romans. Everybody says Paul wrote Romans. Now there are some other, other books like Ephesians that they say we're really not positive where on the scale. When we use textual criticism to look at his words, we're not sure which of these categories, but we're, we're really confident it's not forgery. And so... Scholars eliminate forgery, talking about Ephesians, and they lean on the top six, with some scholars, the more conservative scholars, leaning in the first three, some going as far as six, but most everybody says this would have been authorized by Paul in one sense or another. I'm not really sure, but I lean towards the early part, and I'll, I'll tell you why. 
Because textual critics, and I, I, I get it that some of you are right now are just thinking, what have I gotten myself into? This is the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. And then some of you are like, this is the most fascinating thing I've ever heard in my life. And you are the people that I actually like. <laughs> so textual critics look at style. They're looking for the word dear, and in, instead they find sweet, sweet cheeks. And so they say, Paul could not have written this gospel. But I, I, I cracked open the first book I ever wrote that, that was, was fairly widely distributed. It's called God's Greatest Passion. And I, wrote, I opened it knowing that I was a lousy writer when I wrote it and that I think completely different now than I did when I wrote it. And so I, I just decided to randomly open it to a page and see if I could find examples that I would never in a million years write today. And here's three things that I found on that page. One, I talked about sharing the gospel and being born again. And you think, well, you talk about that stuff all the time. I do, but I define those words. You'll rarely ever hear me just say, hey, let's go share the gospel. That doesn't make sense to not-so-churchy people, and we're a church for not-so-churchy people. I, don't ra- I rarely ever use the phrase born again without talking about what it means to be transformed and changed by God. And then I found this awful, terrible sentence. They're personally responsible for their response. So I've got response and response, four words separated from one another, which I would never do now. It's absolutely awful writing. And I use an adverb, and adverbs are, ter- are, are the enemy of good writing. So instead of personally responsible, I would say they're accountable. That would be a much better, more concise, excellent sentence. They're accountable for their response. And so even if you look at me 15 years ago compared to who I am now as an author, you would look and say, these are two different authors because they write differently. And all it means is that I've progressed in the way I think. I've, prog- I've evolved as a writer. And that happens in every writer's life. N.T. Wright, who would con- be considered one of the, probably the most, one of the preeminent uh, Paulian scholars alive today says this. He says, arguments from style are clearly important in principle, but they're hard to make in practice. Those who have done computer analysis of Paul's style come up with more conservative results than we might have expected. In fact, if it's stylistic differences we want, the most striking are found between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And no scholar argues that 1st and 2nd Corinthians were not argued by Paul. So so N.T. Wright says, if you look at 1st Corinthians, Paul was writing with one mindset. If you look at 2nd Corinthians, he was writing with a different mindset. And they look to be completely different, but nobody argues. There's other textual critical reasons why they know that Paul wrote both texts. So, So the reasons people say Paul probably didn't write Ephesians, it's fine to say that, and ultimately it doesn't matter as far as receiving the message from the text. But I am a guy that leans on the, 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 the left half of, of the line as far as did he or didn't he. I tend to think he did. So I put this picture up here, and you're going to have an obvious question. And your, your, your obvious question is, what's with the fish? And I think you're asking the wrong question what you ought to be asking is, what's the porpoise? <laughs> I sat at my desk and laughed out loud this week. And then I, I just thought, I am such a nerd. So what's the purpose of this book? Why did he write it? Why, why did he write it? And I, I am quite the artist, and so I uh, just tapped into all my artistic ability, and I drew a graph or a a, a chart or however you want to describe it. And this is kind of the central theme of this book, Ephesians. If you read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 6, this is what you see. You see that God made himself known and revealed himself in Christ, and that Christ makes himself known and reveals himself in the church, and the church being us, and we'll talk about that as we go. So God reveals himself in Christ who reveals himself in us, and we reveal Christ to the world. And when we are revealing Christ to the world, 
we are showing the world what God is like. And it's circular. God in Christ, in us, in Christ, in God. That is the theme of this letter that I believe Paul wrote to the churches in Asia. So let's, let's talk about the big picture. And I also just admired myself for this particular graphic that I spent an embarrassing amount of time developing. In all of these texts, what, happen, what can happen is you read a letter, and if you only read one paragraph of that letter, which we can only tackle so much each day, you miss big picture stuff. And if you only read the one letter in, without the context of the entire New Testament, and if you don't read the, the entire New Testament without the context of the Old Testament, you can really get some bad ideas by just reading bits and pieces. And so each week, probably what I'm going to want to do is pull out some things that people might read in the text and, and come to really awful conclusions from because they're only reading a portion of the text. And we are a reach-across-the-aisle church here. Uh, we, we have people on both ends of the political spectrum. We have people on, all kinds of, uh, on the ends of all kinds of spectrums with beliefs and ideas. Uh, and, and one of our core values that's stated on our website right now is that uh, we major on the majors and minor on the minors. And so, but I'm, I'm going to show one of my views that I think are important on what kind of might be a minor issue as we unpack the text. So you've got verse 1 down, you know, the first little passage where Paul says, hey guys, you who are, are, are Christians, this, is, this letter's for you, and this is what he follows it with. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's really into God the Father and to Jesus Christ because he says it twice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. He really admires Christ. You're going to see a pattern here of Christ, Christ, Christ. It's pretty cool. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, and this is, maybe you can't read this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So he chose us before the world was created, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us. And I'm just going to show my hand because I feel pretty strongly about what some people consider a, a minor. What happens when we read these passages is we can go back to experiences, encounters, teachings that we've heard where, where some people believe God created some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell, and that's just your destiny, and you're going there, and there's nothing you can do about it. That, that there's this idea, and it, it ties into what they call determinism, that everything has been determined, and you're going to go to heaven or hell, not on your own, not ha having nothing to do with you, but just who the sovereign God of the universe designed you to be. If you're on the outs, tough luck. And so what happens is if you're a determinist or a, let's say, hyper-Calvinist, You'll read this text and you'll say, oh, predestination, boom, my theology is correct. But let's, let's parse this out. Let's take a big picture view of some of this by using song lyrics. So these actually turned out to be some of my favorite bands. These are all songs that I'm familiar with except the last one. Waterdeep wrote a song called Gospel Train. It says, the gospel train is a coming. It's coming right down the track. Glenn Kaiser, who you may have heard earlier in here, says, this train is bound for glory, this train. Havelina Rail Company writes, that train that train, train, train is glory bound. And then there's an old spiritual that says, get on board, little children. It says it three times. It says there's room for many more. All can go, rich and poor, no second class, no difference in the fare. So this is my view on the predestination gig in a 45-second presentation. My view is that there is this thing going to glory, and it's destined to go there. And from the foundation of the world, from before time, God determined this was the mechanism. This was, this was the, the train. It's, it's the gospel train, the glory train. It's going there, and that train is Jesus. Jesus takes people to glory. Jesus, be, and you'll hear in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, in this, in this, in this uh, chapter of the Bible and through the, whole through the whole book, over and over. It means in him, 
people go on to glory. Um, John says it like this. He says, whoever, and, and in some passages it says, whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. God so loved the world that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal zoe life, life abundant, life overflowing, life that you can't contain. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be sozoed, which is the Greek for salvation. Uh, when we hear salvation, it's sozo, which we talk about in here all the time. It's, it's abundance in every area. It's life in every area. So it says for everyone who is on that train, there is this predetermined, predestination, expectation that all will be made right with the world. So that's my 45-second presentation on Calvinism and, and Arminianism and such. Um, let me skip ahead. One of my favorite authors says it like this, he choo-choo chooses you. So if you're wondering what it means that you were chosen, it means he chose Christ as the vessel and everyone on board is included. Uh, so when you, when you look at, at predestination and stuff, there's four little categories that I put on here, and there's others, other subcategories. There's Calvinism, which would be kind of a deterministic, typically deterministic view. Armenianism, which focuses on free will and that we have a choice. Molinism is kind of a hybrid of the two that says God knows everything. It has a whole lot to do with, with the preconceptions of God and the pre-knowledge of God. And then Eucutianism is one that I have determined is my view. And Eucutianism is God saying, you guys are so cute when you try and understand. <laughs> when, when we talk about this stuff, we're talking about God and quantum physics and the nature of the universe and time and, and, and theories on time. And most of us aren't qualified. And so what we have to rely on is what do we know of the character of God? And the character of God is not a God who creates people to burn forever, period. If you want to talk about that further, come talk to me. So let's go on with the text. So in it, he says, in love, he predestined us, but I didn't finish that sentence yet. There's an ellipse there. So it goes on. What did he predestine us for? And it's really great. And Paul gets really excited about it. It says, for adoption, so he, what did he predestine us for? Where does that vessel take us? It takes us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in him, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which is repeated again, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Let me unpack this. What this says is God created this vessel that goes somewhere, and, 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 and on board that vessel, God gets to do what he's always wanted to do. He's, uh, it's unveiled the mystery of his will. You want to know what God wants to do with the universe, what it was about? This passage tells us. Paul tells us in this passage, what is the will of God? And the will of God is that we would be adopted as sons to God his beloved Jesus, in him we have redemption, we've been bought out, we are lavished upon with forgiveness and, and made known as the mystery. So Paul's purpose in writing this is to say, this is what God wants. God wants you to be close to him, adopted by him, redeemed to him, and, and as we talk about further setting apart. But he, he uses the word adoption, and that's what the clip at the beginning touched on because we think of adoption as this beautiful, wonderful word with warm fuzzies, you know, adopt, oh, adopted. Is there anything better in life? And the answer is yes, but I also found this quote recently that says adoption is a beautiful word, but it's also a disruptive, shaking things up in a bad way word. It signifies the breaking of a life that could have been. 
There's, there's probably none or virtually no adoptions that don't occur without some kind of breaking apart of some other possible world. And so when, when an adoption occurs, it's a taking in and it's a beautiful thing. But there's also, I almost want to use the word violence. There's this departure from a timeline that could have happened that could have been beautiful. And, and, and in the text, you find not only, sorry, not only the word adoption, but you also find the word redemption. And redemption is the same thing. It's a buying out of something. It's if, if, if there's a person who's, who's being sold as a slave and I come to buy them, I am redeeming them. So I am pulling them towards one life, but I'm also pulling them away from another life. And so this central theme is that the mystery of God's will for you is that God wants to lavish his forgiveness upon you and pull you away from something and put you in someplace else. The text continues, according to his purpose, which he set forth, and here you see it again, in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So it's a pulling out and putting in. It's pulling you out of something and putting you into something. There's a, there's a parable that Jesus tells, and he actually tells two stories that are very similar. They're, they're kind of the shortest parables Jesus tells. And they're the parables of the treasure in the field and the par- parable of the pearl of great price. And this is, this is it. This is the whole parable. Jesus says this. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. So you got a farmer or, or a land purchaser of some sort, and he goes out and he, find, he, he finds out that the mineral rights to this land, that the, 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 the largest oil field in western Kentucky, in eastern Kentucky, is right here under the ground here, and the land is only $300,000. Well, he, but he doesn't have three hundred dollars He has to go sell everything he has. So he has to depart from what he was and what he had to purchase something that is truly valuable, something that is exceptionally valuable, a treasure. And it's the same, it's this theme that you let go of something you don't necessarily need for something much better, that you let go. And, and I, I added to my art some of the stuff you'll let go of. And, and this is my handwriting with a big Sharpie marker. Sorry about that. You're letting go of what's temporary, what's frail, of sin, which we've, we've uh, defined before. Despair, narcissism, tragedy, hatred, classism, death cause and effect. God breaks the cause and effect chain of everything you ever did that you're ashamed of, everything you've ever done that you were embarrassed of. He, that's, that's part of the good news is that you don't have to pay the price for anything you ever did. There's no reason for despair when there's the hope that this train will arrive at the station. And so it's, it's this concept that Paul's writing about that says, let go let go of everything and turn to what? In Him, in Christ, in Him, in Christ. Christ, 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 in Christ. Turn towards Him. Let go of everything else and turn towards Him, and that's where the treasure lies. And, and later in the, in the passage, which we won't get to today, it uses the word church, and, and it's, it's in Greek, ekklesia, and it means the called out ones. And so when we think of church, we think of buildings and steeples and, and stained glass and meetings and prayer groups uh, and a congregation of believers. But in the original language, what it meant was people who had been pulled out of one thing and placed somewhere else. And that's the theme of this letter. 
Martin Luther said this. He said, it's not imitation that makes sons. It's sonship that makes imitators. That'd be worth chewing on for a while. You know, I, I have a son named Siler, and let's, let's say there's another friend of his that comes around, and, and he recognizes that I'm extremely, like, the most awesome father there is, and I'm extremely cool and funny and, and handsome, and he wants to be just like me, right? <laughs> he can imitate me all he wants, but that will never make him my son. But when I have a son, and he watches me and is a part of my life consistently, his imitation will come naturally. So there's a difference between imitation and sonship. And what Paul invites us to is the better. What Paul invites us to is the sharing of blood, the sharing of meals, the sharing of friendship and companionship and closeness and connection and that of family. Paul invites us to leave a departure from God's family and invade the kingdom of God and become God's child. The text continues. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ there it is again, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, and it says the gospel of your salvation. So these are words that I like to define. Gospel meaning good news, salvation meaning soundness in every area. The good news that you can have soundness in every area and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And this is as far as I'm going in the text today. But I want to sum up the text so far that I've highlighted in red because what happens is in this passage, you start at the beginning and there's, there's this theme that runs throughout, but then there's a lot of superfluous language in between, kind of, you know, the, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ text. And so I want, I, I, what I've done is I've used a lot of ellipses to break down the passage to what I think it says at its core. Again, this is me talking about what I get out of the passage. Wow, that light is going to be tough. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption, forgiveness lavished upon us. Uh, and and, and do, in doing so, he is making known to us the mystery of his will in Christ. In him, we have an inheritance. In Christ, in him, the good news of your soundness in every area. So when Paul's writing this letter, when he kicks it off, what he says is that Christ wants to lavish forgiveness on us, wants to lavish himself on us, that he has revealed God to us. And as we'll find out later in the passage, how that ultimately ends and what we'll talk about next week. Is, and and we, can, we can look at it either way. You can either look at the, the text on the screen or, or the diagram is that if you want to know what God looks like, Christ is the example. Christ shows us how we, what God's character is, what he's like, what his personality is. That's how we know. So God was revealed in Christ. But how is the world supposed to know Christ? It's you. That's the theme. The theme is that God has revealed himself in Christ, and now Christ has revealed himself in ecclesia, the ones who have been called out the ones who have been separated from narcissism and frailty and sin and death and cause and effect. That reveals Christ to the world, and in revealing Christ to the world, we are effectively revealing God to the world. So what it means for you is to be called out. There's several passages in Scripture where it says, what must I do to be sozoed? What must I do to have soundness in every area, to have salvation? And there's, there's, several, there's several ways it's described, but it really comes down to kind of, a of, of, of an acknowledgement of seeing it, getting it. It uses the word believe, but believe has a much deeper meaning usually. It means like 
getting it. It means getting it, and then it talks about repentance, which means a turning, and then it specifically often talks about being baptized. And so if you want to know kind of the, the scriptural path, <clears throat> the, I was very emotional about it. The scriptural path towards sozo, towards salvation, it says believe, repent, be baptized. That's what it says over and over in scripture. And I don't know what that means to you today, but I do know this. The writer of this letter, 2,000 years ago almost, wanted us to know today that God calls people out of frailty and sin and death and cause and effect and decay and hopelessness and turns us on to the opposite of all that. And that's Paul's goal of writing the letter.